Morning. Welcome to St. James. It's good to see you guys. Um, thank you for letting me, I, just, I haven't been here in a couple weeks. Uh, thank you for letting me have a couple weeks to work on uh, schoolwork stuff. And uh, I got a lot done and uh, pressed hard on that. Thanks to, uh, and uh, so you guys will uh, hopefully reap the benefits of that too. There's some other stuff that I worked on for us as well over the past couple weeks. I'll tell you about one of those things in a minute. But also thanks to Pastor Lang for being really kind and uh, preaching too. I, it always, um, we had this conversation in elders and he always is like, it doesn't matter who preaches. And I, I always want Pastor Lang to preach because we know him and he knows us. And um, I really appreciate him doing that. He's, uh, I, I don't, did he tell you guys, he is, he preached two weeks here and now he's in Germany and he's preaching at Wittenberg for a couple of weeks. So, like, he graduated the big leagues. He actually went straight from rookie ball, St. James, all the way to uh, all the big leagues. And so he's up there, and so we'll pray for his safety and that he has a good time. That's going to be really fun for him. A um, few things about schedule. Youth confirmation is on for today, as far as I know, uh, as long as we're, we're all here. Uh, new members class tonight at, uh, what time is that? Six. Six. Thank you, John. New members is from 6 to 7.30. Tonight, we're going to start talking about the historical Jesus, which, super engaging. I, um, um, this is not, uh, how can I say this? What I'm not going to talk about tonight is like the religious Jesus, but who Jesus was historically, like right off the pages of Scripture, and then to figure out what does that mean for our Christian worship that Jesus was this person, this historical character. Uh, we'll talk about that tonight. Anybody's welcome to come to that. Uh, you don't need to let me know, 6 to 7.30. Uh, adult Bible study today, Can, I'm gonna make a, a quick commercial here. This is one of the things that I've, uh, I've started working on the past couple weeks. Um, we'll talk about evangelism, apologetics and evangelism in adult Bible class. And I know that that weirds some people out. Uh, but let me just encourage you that much of what is taught to us about evangelism in the Christian church is taught to us by people who are good at evangelism, who are extroverts and don't mind talking to people. And that's many times not helpful at all. If you know me, I'm not extroverted. I don't just walk up to strangers and say, hey, let me talk to you about the Bible. Uh, so what does evangelism look like for people who aren't any good at evangelism? That's one of the things I wanna do. Now, part of that is I wanna talk to us, I want us to discuss why it is our culture thinks the way it thinks about the world, why it is that people, and a lot of you know this, you talk to people who are, are a couple generations younger than you, for those of you who are older, and it's almost like you're talking a completely different language. There are reasons for this, there are cultural reasons for this, and if we're going to live as Christians in this world correctly, we should know what those are and why they're there and how to relate to, 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 to those different reasons. That is connected to a broader commercial that I wanna do about adult Bible study in general. So God has commanded all of us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I wanna help us do that. Adult Bible study is gonna be the best place for that. Some of you don't do adult Bible study because you're like, oh, I did confirmation, I graduated, I don't have to do that anymore. Can I encourage you that adult Bible study is beneficial? And it's one of the places where we can talk about something like apologetics and cultural things and evangelism. Uh, in, in a more extended way. So please, if you haven't been to adult Bible study in a while, this would be a good time to start this discussion we're gonna have about apologetics and evangelism. Um, 
youth group this Tuesday, men's Bible study Wednesday morning. Thursday is kind of a big one. We're going to have this uh, a vision event here, which will include a meal. Um, this will be a Tom Egerbrecht from um, uh, LCF is going to be here to help guide us. This is almost the first stage. I know we did the survey, and, and some of you did the survey. Whether you did the survey or didn't do the survey, please plan on coming Thursday evening to the vision event where Tom's going to lead us in a discussion about who we are, who God has called this church to be, and what that looks like going forward missionally here in Glen Carbon. That's this Thursday evening. If you're going to come, please RSVP. If you forget to RSVP, or you decide at the last minute I'm going to come and it's too late to RSVP, please come anyway. It's, it's, it's important that as many of us as possible are here. All right, I think that's the last uh, um, notice I have for us. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin with the opening hymn. Take away my sin 
upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Since we're gathered to hear God's word, call upon him in prayer and praise and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of this altar. Let us first consider our unworthiness and confess before God and one another that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and that we cannot free ourselves from our sinful condition. Together as his people, let us take refuge in the infinite mercy of God, our Heavenly Father, seeking his grace for the sake of Christ and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Almighty God, have mercy upon us, forgive us our sins, and lead us to everlasting life. Amen. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm 23, this is the Psalm for Good Shepherd Sunday, which is today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. reading, um, kind of working our way through Acts uh, 2, 42-47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, that's uh, the, the breaking of bread there is the sacrament, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, that's talking about just fellowship meals, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading from 1 Peter 2. This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 10. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated.
Okay, if you could turn to 1 Peter 2, to the epistle reading. Um, this is uh, Pastor Lang, the past couple weeks, has preached on the, uh, the 1 Peter text. And I, I really liked it. It was uh, good. So I, I kind of wanted to continue it on, and probably will as we go through 1 Peter. And I want to talk about uh, suffering. Pastor Lang talked to us about suffering as well. And uh, it's kind of a big theme of 1 Peter is how to suffer in dif- different circumstances and uh, we'll look at those as we go along. Uh, but today I want to talk about the, uh, this, suffering, uh, suffering when you do right. Suffering, I- enduring when you do right and, and you're persecuted for it. Um, I want to start off by talking about reasons why we suffer here. And there's a couple of reasons. One is that uh, Peter's going to differentiate here, but, but also because I-, I want us to have the tools to differentiate how we respond to different types of suffering in our life. All right, so in the Bible, there's different reasons why people, there's not just one, you know, what happens when you suffer? That's really, you, lots of different reasons why we suffer. And um, you kind of have to unpack well, where's the suffering coming from and what's causing it, what's going on here. And the Bible talks, I'm sure there's more, but there's roughly three kind of big reasons why you see people uh, suffer in the Bible. Uh, the first is the Job reason, uh, you, the book of Job. Jo- Job has no clue what's going on, why it is that his uh, kids have been killed, why it is that his property's been stolen, uh, why it is that uh, um, uh, he's got uh, sores all over his body, why his friends, he doesn't have any clue. And, and honestly, we don't really either when you read the book of Job. I mean, on the surface, you can say God and Satan made a bet but really, what's the whole point? You don't know. That's one reason. That's the Job reason. And many times, you will suffer in your life, and you won't know why. There won't be a cause. You lose a loved one suddenly, for instance. You really can't pin that down on, like, well, what, what, what's wrong? What did I do wrong to cause this? Or what did somebody else do wrong to cause it? Sometimes bad stuff happens. These are Job reasons for suffering. There's also the Jonah reason for suffering. You have the Job reason, you have the Jonah reason for suffering. Jonah suffers, but Jonah suffers because he rebels against God. Jonah suffers because he sins. He he sins. So if I lie to one of you, and you catch me in the lie, and then I lose that part of our friendship that the lie cost us, and I, I experience shame for it, and you're angry with me about it, the reason for the reason why I'm suffering with the shame and with your anger and with the lost friendship is because. I sinned. I did something to cause that. This is a Jonah reason. Peter, 
is not going into that type here. He specifically says that in verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If you sin and you suffer, that's not what I'm talking about, Peter says. If you endure when that happens, that's not any credit to you. What I want to talk about this text, Peter says, is the third type, the Joseph type of suffering. So you have the Job type type of suffering where you don't know why it's happened. You have the Jonah type of suffering where you suffer because you've sinned. And then, then you have the, the Joseph type of suffering where you suffer because of something that other people have done to you. You're suffering unjustly. That's what Peter's talking about in this text. Joseph, of course, is uh, persecuted by his brothers. He's persecuted by the Egyptian legal system. He's persecuted by Potiphar's wife. All this stuff is happening to other people outside of him who are sinning against him. That's kind of the, the, the paradigm here. Now, why is it important to talk about this? Uh, because when you suffer, you have to ask the right questions. What do I need to do here is, of course, the right question. If you are suffering and it's a Job reason, it's not something that you've done wrong, it's not something that anybody else has done wrong, the wrong question to ask yourself is, what have I done here that God's punishing me? That's not what's going on. And you will get yourself into a psychological jam if every time something goes wrong in your life, you say, why am I being punished? What's going wrong? If you sin... And you, if I lie to you, and then you're angry at me, and I say my immediate response is, oh, that's okay, suffering is just for God's glory. I'm missing the point. It's an opportunity. That suffering is an opportunity for me to repent before God and to ask you to forgive me, re reconciliation of that relationship, and then we can talk about God's glory. But you can't, you, you, you can't switch these up, else you're not gonna grapple with the different sufferings that we have in our lives. So, um, two qu uh, quick notes here. Uh, one is Job, Jonah, and Joseph. It's uh, nice and neat, and it's good. I, ho I hope you can remember that. It it's hardly ever the case that your suffering falls nice and tidily into one of those distinct and discrete categories. Frequently, it's a mixture of those things. I, th I think frequently I've talked to people before whose marriage has really suffered because of some sort of d devastating blow, the loss of a job or the loss of a child. And what happens in those relationships is you have an element of Job suffering in there, the loss of a child, and you have an element of Joseph suffering too. My spouse has not responded well to this. And you have an element of uh, Jonah suffering as well, and I've not responded well to her. So it's a big mixture. I, it's, it hardly ever works, but it is important to suss these things out. So you can talk about what are, what are the steps here? The part about our child, we just have to trust God for that. We, we, that, that, that. I said that and it sounded like it was just real simple. It's not. We have to, to sit deeply in that grief and trust that God is with us. That's the way I should have said it. The part about the spouse sinning against you and not responding properly, well, we'll talk about that today in the, in the first Peter 2 reading. The part about you know, the, the, the Jonah part, the part where I have sinned, it's an opportunity for me to repent and ask for forgiveness and uh, learn God's grace. So second, uh, nota bene, is this. There is no null set here. There's no spot in scripture where the things that you suffer are just completely meaningless, random. Ah, bad stuff happens. There is no point in scripture where God is not somehow intricately involved, all right? So it's not like there's Job, Jonah, Joseph, and then sometimes stuff happens and there's no, no real meaning, just part of living in life. 
That's not the case. God is always involved somehow in his sovereignty, all right? So we're not gonna, we're not gonna take suffering and ever say, well, what are you gonna do? Bad stuff happens, what are you gonna do? There's always some way that we can respond biblically to it. Now this morning, I just all sort of, uh, um, that, that, that's all kind of a long intro, I guess. What we're gonna talk about is category number two, Joseph's suffering. How do we respond? What does it mean when we suffer because of sins others commit against us? All right. Peter makes it real clear what this is about. It's, well, I'll just read it to you. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Look down at the end of verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When we suffer because others sin against us, it's about grace. It promotes and demonstrates God's grace when we suffer because other people sin against us. It's about God's grace. And the rest of the sermon is going to be about how to unpack that. A thesis statement here. The result of Christian suffering, in, in this sense, in the Joseph sense, is not loss, failure, or randomness, but salvation. Salvation is created and displayed and put into action in real time on the street when Christians suffer unjustly. When Christians suffer because people do wrong to them. All right, so how does this work? How does suffering create salvation? This is the next thing we're gonna talk about. Peter connects this answer, how does suffering become grace, by connecting it to Jesus. Of course, Christian sermon, right? Two things we need to see what Peter's doing here. Peter is doing, it's about Jesus, but Peter's doing two distinct things that we have to keep separate in our minds here, but with the same Jesus. Now, the first thing is, is he talks about how, this is A, Jesus' sufferings save us. Jesus suffered unjustly, and it saved us. So verses 22 through 25, let's look at that for just a few minutes. Let me point out to you too, if you're interested, these are all quotes Echoes and allusions to Isaiah 53. Every one of these four verses has a connection to Isaiah 53. Okay, so why is that important for those of you who don't know Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 is maybe the most important chapter in the Old Testament. It's this vision Isaiah has of this suffering servant who's going to come sometime and who the sins of the whole world are gonna be piled up onto this guy's shoulders. And he's gonna be beaten up and humiliated and killed and we're all gonna look at this servant and say, man, God must hate that guy. Look at how bad his life is. Look at how bad he got beat up. And then we're gonna realize that he was actually being beaten up for our sins. He was unjustly accused, convicted, condemned and executed for what I've done. That's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 becomes in the New Testament a way that the New Testament writers from John to Paul to Peter, see and understand the events of Holy Week. This guy, this construction worker gets killed, rises from the dead. What the heck does that mean? They've got this category in their head ready to interpret it, Isaiah 53. He was killed for us. That's what's going on in verses 22 through 25. So let's very briskly walk through this and think about it. Jesus, verse 22 committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus suffered even though he was completely innocent. In fact, he was the most innocent of innocents. 
All of you have suffered in Joseph-type ways at some point in the course of your life. You have suffered unjustly. Sometimes the suffering that you've done has been 90% that person's fault who sinned against you or group of people. Sometimes it's been 50%. It has never been 100% though. We We are always victims as human beings. We are never not victimizers though. That's a part of the deal. Even if in the, the, the relationship where you have been sinned against the most, it has never been 100% the other person's fault and you are 0% innocent. It's, it's the, the nature of the case. We're all children, we're all daughters and sons of Adam and Eve. It's just the way it is. Except for Jesus. 100% innocent. The only person in the whole world of whom it could ever be said he committed no sin Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He never did anything wrong. He never said anything wrong. Jesus is the only one. And yet he suffered completely innocently. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to to him who judges justly. Jesus, when he suffered unjustly, did not fight back against those who were persecuting him, but trusted in the one who judges justly, in other words, trusted the one who makes everything right, turned himself over to the God who does everything perfectly and says, God, this is your business. Did Jesus like this? No. Did Jesus want to get out of this? Yes. If it's possible, he says to his father, let this cup pass from me. But when the rubber met the road, he trusted his father for this. My suffering is in your hands, God. You are in charge here. The Joseph type suffering. But again, you wouldn't say this with the Jonah type suffering. You know, if I lie to you, I wouldn't say God's got it under control. I lie to people. It's not a big deal because suffering is a part of looking like Jesus. So I can lie to you and then I don't care about the consequence. That would be the wrong response. Jesus, though, did not lie. Verse uh, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus died so that we could live. Okay, so you have the historical events. Jesus gets killed. Jesus rises from the dead. Those are interesting facts. It becomes salvation when you realize the for us nature of it. Jesus died and rose for you, specifically for you. Jesus did it for you. Powerful historical events. But when you get the for us, he did it, he suffered for us. It becomes salvation. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We were lost, but Jesus brought us back. Jesus did all of this suffering in order to pull us back from the brink. Okay, Jesus' suffering is what was required to save us. Sometimes this is necessary. There are some problems in your life that a phone call will solve. There are some problems in your life that a quick Google search will solve. There are some problems in your life that a conversation with a friend discussing what should we do next will solve. But there are problems in each one of our lives that are so big and so massive that only suffering can solve those problems. There's a, fi- there's a building and it's on fire. And there's a child inside that building that can't get out. There's no Google search that's going to help that kid. There's no quiet discussion about what are the pros and cons. There's nothing that's going to help that kid unless somebody decides to go into the fire. 
Unless some first responder decides, I'm going to put my life on the line. I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to risk being burned to save that kid from being burned. This is the way the, the world's problems work. The, the biggest of the world's problems. I think that the problem with me, in fact, I don't think, I know this now, and the older I get, the more I'm aware of it. My problems, my, my self-centeredness, my greed, my resentment of other people upstaging me, even when they don't, I just perceive it. My, my bad attitude towards my family, my bad attitude towards you guys, my lack of trust in God. My problems are not the kind that can be solved with a Google search. How to fix Aaron. Really, you're not gonna get the information you need on the internet. The problems of my life are gonna to have to be accomplished if somebody climbs into the fire and decides to be burnt in order to pull me out. That's what Peter is saying Jesus did. Salvation would not have happened without suffering. Cosmic salvation would not have happened without cosmic suffering. Divine salvation would not happen without divine suffering. Jesus had to become a man in order to suffer to rescue us. He became the capital, capital F, our first responder. Now, okay, that's just good old-fashioned Christianity. What does this mean for us? Jesus' suffering doesn't just save us. Peter insists that Jesus' suffering is also our example. This is the second part of this point. Jesus' suffering saves us, but Jesus' suffering is also our example. That's what he says in verse 21, right? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ has called you and I as Christians, he's called the Christian church to suffer like he did for others. Jesus suffers to rescue us from the fire. Peter's insisting here in 1 Peter 2.21 that he has now called us for to this you have been called. This is your vocation. Put this right on up there along with husband and wife, your job, your daily duties, Jesus has called us to suffer like he did for the sake of the lost. Christ suffers for us, we suffer for the lost. Jesus says in John 20, we read this, Pastor Lang read this two weeks ago, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. That's what Peter's saying. What does that mean? God has called us to suffer, and Jesus is our example. Because suffering, for the, suffering with Jesus for the sake of the world is the only way to model for the world the crucified Jesus. Do we want, as Christians, those, those of you are Christians, do you want the world to come to know Jesus? Yes, that's right answer is yes. How, what Jesus do you want them to know? Do you want them to know the cool Jesus who has all the answers? Do you want them, do you want them to know the, 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 the successful Jesus that helps people with their marriage lives and with their finances? Do you want people to know the relevant Jesus who says all the right things at the right times? That Jesus doesn't save. There's only one Jesus who has the power to save and that's the crucified Jesus. And as long as the Christian church tries to be relevant, intelligent, cool, we'll talk about this downstairs in adult Bible study. There's nothing wrong with trying to relate. And there's nothing wrong for those five or six of you who are cool that you're cool. Or those of you who are smart, that you're smart. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the Jesus that can save the world. What's the Jesus that can save the world? The suffering Jesus. What's the one way that they know it? First Peter 2. When the Christian church suffers for them. 
as the Father sent me, so I've sent you. We, we spend a lot of time, especially as the American Christian church, trying to avoid suffering at all costs. And never in Scripture are you to like suffering. Jesus even asked his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, can I get out of this, like I said earlier. But we spend all this time trying to avoid suffering when it's actually what Glenn Carbon needs. They need to see us suffering. We freak out when people don't like Christians. But when people don't like Christians, that's the one way that they meet the Jesus that nobody likes. We should embrace this. We should rejoice in it. This is how grace happens. Literally, in Greek, it says, for this is grace. Verse 19 says, for this is grace. When mindful of God, one endures. Same thing at the end of verse 20. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is grace with God, it says. This is grace with God. You want to show the world grace? Suffer unjustly. All right, now, how to do this, and then we'll be done. This is the last thing I want to talk about. We've already looked at verses 22 through 25 as a proclamation of what Jesus has done for us. That's its primary foundational meaning. Nothing of what I'm about to say next is going to take that away. But now, let's spend some time thinking about what did verses 22 through 25 say about how to look like Jesus, because after all, that's what Peter says. Peter says this was done as an example for you. So, four points here. The first one, I just mentioned this. Remember that it's not our suffering that does this. It's, it's not our suffering that saves the world. It's Jesus' suffering, but it's our job to model Jesus' suffering. The suffering of Aaron Miller doesn't save the world. But if Aaron Miller can model and demonstrate Jesus to Glenn Carbon, that's what God will use to save Glenn Carbon. That's the first thing. Second thing here, just looking at some of these verses. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Of course, this is impossible for us. We are sinners, but it is a part of the example that Jesus has set for us that we are to suffer righteously. There will be times that you suffer like Jonah, but the salvific times will be when we suffer like Joseph, when we suffer not for doing bad, but for doing good. So at home, at work, in your neighborhood associations, put away lying, put away stretching the truth, Put away the impulse behind lying and stretching the truth, which is to impress other people or to protect your reputation. Put those away. Put away the office politics. Put away the games where we get ahead by stepping on other people. Put away the games where we help other people get ahead by assisting them in, in stepping on other people. Put away sexual immorality. Put away the thoughts, words, and deeds that do not lead to faithfulness to your spouse. Put away the pornography. Put away the flirting conversations. Put away the talking poorly about your spouse with coworkers and with friends. Put away the easy frustrations, the moments where little things get you down visibly. It's, it's, it's actually, uh, I found that this is one of the best ways to unimpress people with Christianity and one of the best ways to impress people with Christianity is when you're the only one on the team who will endure the bad client with a smile on your face. Not because you're an idiot, not because you don't know what's going on, but because you're gonna love the client. It's super impressive to people who don't know. Where, where, why are you acting like that? Where is that coming from? Put away the greed. Put away the decision-making based upon financial considerations. Put away the putting the job promotion over your family or your coworkers. Instead, put on gentleness. Loving the, loving the difficult customer or client. Put on honesty. Honesty with love. Put on selflessness. 
taking the bullet for a co-worker who can't afford to take the bullet and when you can. These are valuable ways that we learn to suffer in the name of Jesus in ways that show people Jesus. Again, you aren't gonna do this perfectly. It's only the Holy Spirit that can create this and we're always gonna screw up, okay? Remember, it's not you that has to accomplish this. It's Jesus who is doing this. And he can use our failures at this too if we're ready and willing to repent and ask forgiveness. Especially if you're ready, if you're ready and willing to repent and ask forgiveness from an unbeliever. That's a great way to model what it means to suffer for the sake of Jesus. 23, uh, third point. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you bless your enemies? Do we bless our enemies? Do we revile when we're reviled? Do we threaten when, we're, when, we're, when we suffer? When people are against the Christian church, is our default mode to fight back? To try and make a statement about who we are? To revile? I, I, I know it is. I, know, I see Christians on social media treating politicians they disagree with, treating cultural movements they disagree with like trash. But you know what Jesus said in Luke 6? He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse. Do we bless those who curse us? When you are cursed by the world, do you bless them in return? Do you root for their good? Do you pray for those who abuse you, Jesus goes on to say. When we do, we are modeling who Jesus is. When we curse Jesus, he blessed us. When we reviled Jesus, he saved us. When our sins put him on the cross, he bore them lovingly for us. Do we do that for others? Or are we, are we nothing more than just another special interest group fighting with a little bit of power that we have against all the other special interest groups out there in the world? Let it not be said of the Christian church, that, and again, this is so hard to do. Let it not be said of us, though, that we did not suffer and show the world a chance to see Jesus when we had to. Instead, we decided to fight back and just show, well, our political group or our ideological group or even our church group. When you are reviled, do not revile in return. When you suffer, do not threaten. Lovingly take it. End of verse 23. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do we trust God with our suffering? When we suffer for the sake of, the, for, for the sake of Jesus, when we suffer when doing right, do we trust the one who judges justly, the, the one who puts all things to right in the end? Do we trust him that he's in control and that he's got a plan for this? and that he's going to accomplish what he wants to through our suffering? Do we believe that he's in control? And uh, some, a lot of you know this story, but in 1956, uh, five missionaries traveled to the Huaroni tribe in Ecuador in order to evangelize this tribe who had not heard the gospel before. Uh, the five were killed. Uh, they were killed, it's actually just kind of a, I don't know, it's almost like a social media reason. It's like the kind of thing that you would see in the news. They weren't killed because they were sharing their faith. They, they, they established a relationship, uh, started to build a relationship. Three people came to visit them. Two young people, a man and a woman, and then their chaperone, an older woman, came to visit these missionaries. Uh, the three decided, the, the, the young couple decided to leave and go back to their village, which was several miles away. The chaperone wanted to stay and talk more 
with the missionaries, when the two young people got to their village, the brother of the girl was angry that they had left their chaperone. The boy freaked out, did not want to get in trouble, and said, we had to run away because the missionaries were mean to us and attacked us. And, and when we were running away, we lost the chaperone. The village decided that they would handle the threat by going and killing the five missionaries, which they did. The missionaries had no clue that they were being killed because this kid had lied. It's a horrible, senseless loss of life. It's very much a, 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 a Joseph situation. From the perspective of the families, maybe even a, a little bit of a Job situation. Two of the women connected with those five missionaries, Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was killed, and Rachel Saint, whose brothers were killed, whose brother was killed, decided to go back and try again. And ended up living for almost a decade with them. And many of them were converted to Christ, including some of the people who had thrown the spears that killed their husband and um, uh, their husband and brother. The, the response to being attacked by other people on the surface, the easy response is to fight back or to, to, to blow it off. The, the, by the way, the missionaries never fought back. The, 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 the people who had killed them later on when they came to faith told the families the stories and said that one of them had a gun but would not fire at them, fired in the, in the air a couple of times to try to scare them but would not shoot back at them when, when they were being stabbed to death. What would cause Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint to go back to the people who had killed their loved ones and give up their life to bring them to Christ? What made it successful? It wasn't like cultural engagement. They were completely different cultures. It wasn't relevancy. It was people who were willing to embrace the pain and suffering that was caused them unjustly, not because, that they, were, not because they were noble, but because that's what Jesus did for us. And understanding the only way for these people to meet Jesus is if we go back there and show what it's like to suffer in Jesus' name. Will that be the case with us? It's God's grace, Holy Spirit, lots of fits and starts. We're not gonna do this perfectly, but let's pray together that God would do this in our lives as St. James Lutheran Church. That he would, on a much lesser level than these missionaries, that he would make us willing to suffer for the name of Jesus here in Glen Carbon. Let me pray for us. God, help us to suffer for your name's sake. We understand and believe that we can't save anybody, but God, if we can make your son Jesus real and apparent here in Glen Carbon, would you do that for your own name's sake, for your own glory? And we'll help us to trust you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. my shepherd I'll not want He makes me lie in pastures green He leads me by the still, still waters His goodness restores my soul And I will trust in you and I will trust in you alone, for your endless mercy follows me, your goodness will lead me home. 
Father, we thank you for being so good to us and for all your mercies and all your grace, uh, for meeting us when we needed it, for uh, not leaving us hopeless, for not leaving us cursed, but with blessing us with life and with salvation, for sending your son to die for us and rise from the dead for us. Father, give us deep grateful for, great gratefulness for this. Allow this to be the lens through which we see every bit of our lives, our minds, and our emotions, and our relationships, and our vocations. Transform us to look more like this, to, to, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to look more like your son Jesus all the time. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for the ministry that you've called us here to here at Glen Carbon, and we pray that you would uh, allow us to be salt and light uh, here in this village, and that uh, we would be the place where people would look to for hope and for righteousness and for justice and for truth and for mercy. We thank you for all the things that you've called us to, and uh, we thank you especially this morning for um, the finance ministry here at the church, the people who take care of our money, for Elaine and for uh, John and for the gifts that you've given them, and we pray that you would bless them and continue to provide for us, so well, for us as well so that we can serve you and serve others with the gifts that you've given to us. We pray for our um, missions that we support as well, and we praise and thank you for the Seminary Food Bank and for the work that you're doing at the seminary to raise uh, men and women to lead in your church and in your world for you, and that you would bless our seminaries, uh, seminaries and that you would continue to provide um, leaders for our churches so that we can uh, be equipped 
to do the work of the ministry that you've called us to. Lord, in your mercy. We also thank and praise you for our sister churches this morning and pray that you would be with uh, Jerusalem Lutheran Church in Collinsville this morning and Pastor uh, Doug nicely there that you would bless them. That you would be with all of the churches, all the gospel preaching churches in our area. That as we gather this morning and hear your word preached, that you would transform our hearts and our lives to uh, long for you more and to worship you better and to find our hope and meaning in you more. And that by doing that, you would transform the world around us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray that you would be with everyone who's struggling this morning with worries and with concerns and uh, pains and loneliness and that you would pour out your spirit on all of us who are suffering with all of those things and heal us according to your will. We trust in your promise to heal us on the last day. We pray especially that you'd be this morning with Gerhard Malcherik, Paul's dad, and that he's in the hospital and uh, maybe going on hospice soon, that you would give him physical comfort. <clears throat> and most importantly, Father, that you would convince him afresh, that you would keep on giving him the hope and comfort that comes from your son's resurrection and the promise that you, God, through your son Jesus, are going to make all things new someday. Lord, in your mercy. We pray these things because you are a good God and you've invited us to pray and call you Father. And so we boldly bring our requests to you, trusting you to answer them however you want according to your will, but knowing that you will answer them and that you will do what's right by us even when we don't know what that right is, even when we want something different than what that right is, that you, our loving Father, will always care for us, will always discipline us in compassion, will always answer our requests, giving us not the things that we want on the surface, but the, the, the things that we want and need deep down inside, our heart's most uh, profound desires. And we commit those to you. And we pray this as we always do in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. And most especially are we bound to praise you on this day for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Paschal Lamb who was sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world. By his dying, he has destroyed death. And by his rising again, he has restored us to everlasting life. Therefore, with Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and with all the witnesses of the resurrection, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around, find somebody you haven't spoke to in a while, build a relationship. Go in peace.